Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode 23 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts today, as always. In today's episode, we're going to go through five steps to planning complete intersections. And today we're joined by Amber Berg, also with Modern Mobility Partners. And Amber joined us for episode 18, Safe Streets and Roads for All. And she's joining us again today. So welcome. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to hear more about today's topic. I think intersection design is pretty interesting. There's a lot of different configurations when it comes to, you know, pedestrian crossings and bike lanes. Like there's all kinds of kind of innovative ways to design these. So I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more on complete intersections. I, I agree. I'm excited about this because you hear a lot in our industry about complete streets, but you don't always hear about complete intersections. But I find that when we're actually doing the planning, we're often us as a firm. I, I've seen lately we're doing a lot of focus on intersections as a result because that's kind of like the linchpin, you know. Um, yeah. OK, so first, let's give a little bit of background before we get into the nitty gritty. Um, so let's talk about what are complete streets and complete intersections. So complete streets are defined by smart growth America as an approach to planning, designing, building, operating, and maintaining streets that enable safe access for all people who need to use them, including pedestrians, bicyclists, drivers, and transit riders of all ages and abilities. So all encompassing. However, all users need to cross through intersections, right? So complete intersections is an approach to planning and designing roadway intersections that is safe for all users. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, but what's the driving force? You know, there have been increased efforts to build out active transportation networks and complete streets or streets that are safe for all modes of travel. And when we think about these efforts, people often immediately think of sidewalks and bike lanes. And while these are critical, it's also important to think about how these different modes interact with each other at intersections so that we can reduce conflict and risk exposure. Yeah, I mean, this is this is pretty critical to the to the public. And, you know, at best, poorly designed intersections can make people feel frustrated if they're having to wait for extended periods of time. At worst, these poorly designed intersections can result in crashes and even loss of life, yeah. especially if there are high speeds or road users can't see one another. Yeah. So complete intersections can really help all road users get to where they need to go um, without having to risk their life. You know, it's pretty, pretty simple. Yeah. Minor and, detail. Uh, <laughs> minor detail, right. Um, and designing these intersections with pedestrians and bicyclists in mind could really help ensure the safety for all users, um, while also encouraging and increasing transportation choice 
and access to everybody's destination. Yeah. So it's really just about thinking about all of your road users at intersections. So what is our role as transportation planners? You know, intersections are really major access points for all these users and connecting them to the broader transportation network. Um, Most cities don't have a complete network, but where they do have safe walking and biking routes, whether it's a multi-use trail or bike lanes or sidewalks, um, some of these intersections can really make it uncomfortable or even unsafe to walk or bike across, Mm -hmm. even if the rest of that biking or walking route is pretty safe. Um, Intersections are also, you know, major conflict points for uh, road users. And in fact, more than half of the crashes occur at intersection. And that stat, I mean, varies from state to state, city to city, but there's so much more potential for conflict at an intersection um, that it's really a focus for the Federal Highway Administration, FHWA. And I'll also mention that, you know, half the crashes, that's actually reported crashes. We're not even talking about near misses. Yeah. Um, and I've got, I've got, you know, my own uh, example of where I've come across this. Um, I do a lot of walking with my dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost every day. And for the most part, I have a pretty safe route with sidewalks um, and crosswalks and crossing signals. But even at those intersections, even when there's like a pedestrian crossing signal, drivers are not watching for that. They're just watching for the green light. And mm-hmm. uh, just a few weeks ago, I was crossing the street and somebody made a left hand turn and did not see me. And probably came within inches. Oh, God. Of, yeah, of the corner of their car, just like clipping me right in the middle of the road. Um, And that's scary. You know, I guess, yeah, it was really (laughs) scary. Um, So I guess that basically. Did they even wave that they were sorry or anything? No. (laughs) No, I I may have gotten a middle finger. I'm not really sure. Like, like I was, in, like, I was the in the wrong. I know. It's like people don't even know that, like, it is Georgia law to stop at a crosswalk for pedestrians. <laughs> but anyways, um, so I guess that begs the question. Do you all think that design can improve driver decision making? Or is it just the case that, like, we just can't fix stupid? <laughs> <laughs> so... I will say personally that I do think that there are things that we can do on the infrastructure side that can help and make drivers more aware. So one example that I always think about is that, so I live in city of Decatur uh, in the Atlanta area and we are a um, relatively um, bike and walk friendly community. And in the past couple of years uh, they put in, you know, cycle tracks and all that stuff. But what I'm thinking of is the green pavement. So they've painted the pavement green where, you know, there's crosswalks and cyclists and all that stuff. And so at the intersections and beyond. And so it just brings a lot of awareness. So you're, you know, okay, this is a, you know, there's a lot of cyclists in this community, a lot of walkers. I need to keep my, you know, bearings, my surroundings. So I, I do feel like when they, when the, color of the pavement is changed to me that's real a lot more obvious yeah yeah i 
So there's an intersection in the city on the west side, and it's kind of a weird intersection, and the city has gone in and tried to improve it because there are bike lanes, there are a lot of pedestrians, Mm -hmm. and they've painted those green lines. Mm -hmm. But the vehicular traffic has to, like, cross over through the bike lane in order to get Uh, into the inner, like, through the intersection. Mm -hmm. And, like, it makes me so nervous because, yeah, I agree, the green paint does make me more aware but then I'm afraid that like I'm not seeing somebody right like coming mm-hmm. up behind me or so. Well, I'd rather that than just clipping. <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna I, bust on I by suppose. and clip somebody in my turn. You know, I suppose every time I go through that intersection, though, I'm like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing or breaking the law. <laughs> well, not to like get on a tangent, but kind of you know, with this episode on either the last episode I was on, we talk about like the safe systems approach and kind mm-hmm. of that concept of like can you fix stupid like in a way um is like the purpose of the safe system approach like for decades we've been trying to fix stupid and like educate drivers and have these campaigns but clearly we still have crashes and so that's like all about like can we improve the infrastructure so that you don't have to question like can can i go through here like it should be more intuitive right right yeah there's a there's a and i'll we'll let you move on here in just a minute amber but um (laughs) You know, and this is something that that, um, you know, I was just having some conversations about with one of our clients recently. But, you know, there's there's the two sides of what we can do with safety or what the cause is. Part of one side is infrastructure and the other part is behavior, what we've called, you know, stupid. But behavior and an infrastructure as planners, we can't fix behavior. Right. But we Mm -hmm. can help with infrastructure and bring some awareness to, to help around that. So that goes back to that safe systems approach. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, all joking aside, it, it is it is our job as planners and engineers to try to improve both safety and mobility yeah. at these intersections, which is which is a significant challenge. You know, there's there's always this debate about how safety and mobility are actually two two sides of the same coin. If you increase mobility, essentially, you may be increasing speeds, which decreases safety. If you increase safety, you want to actually slow cars down, which then inherently reduces mobility. So um, it's it's a real challenge to balance those things. And and addressing intersection design and intersection operations is really critical to that safe and connected network that we were talking about a little bit earlier for all the modes. Um, especially in an effort to build those complete streets and and achieve, you know, those safety goals of reducing crashes and that, you know, essentially vision zero of uh, eliminating um, crashes. Yeah, there's nothing more important that we can do as transportation planners than to help try to improve safety. Yep. Okay. All right. All right. Five, Five steps. Yes. To planning complete intersections. So, Amber, why don't why don't you take it away? Great. Thank you. Um, So yeah, planning complete intersections is really about um, ensuring that complete streets don't end at the intersection and let those areas of conflict just be a free for all. So um, let's get into it. Step one, identify connections in the walking and biking network. A good walking and biking network is exactly that, a network. It should connect all neighborhoods of the city, just like our quote unquote automobile network does. People should be able to get to where they need and want to go by any mode. 
And what good is a roadway that just ends suddenly or a roadway that takes us down the block but doesn't take us to a destination? That would be frustrating for anyone, even drivers. So we shouldn't tolerate it for non-motorized modes either. Yeah, but doesn't this occur like all over the country? I mean, many times developers are required to install sidewalks, but their next door neighbors do not have one. So it's kind of useless sidewalk, <laughs> you know, just yeah. kind of yeah. stubs out, you know, dead yeah. end. I, th- I think, you know, there's several, several communities are trying to rectify this issue, but just like anything else, transportation has to get prioritized, it has to get funded, then has to go through design, a potential right-of-way or easement process. And what you think would be pretty simple, of like throwing down some concrete for people to walk on, um, is now, you know, this this whole thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also say the cost of concrete has gone up so much that people don't realize how much sidewalks cost. You know, it's millions of dollars for sidewalks. It's not like before where it's like, okay, we just, it's a $100,000 sidewalk project. Nope. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this first step is all about identifying locations to make improvements such as those gaps that you just mentioned so that we can fill them in and there's not just a sidewalk to nowhere that's useless. So we'll want to see where crossings are already available. Um, So where are sidewalks, trails and bike lanes? Where do they already exist and cross another path or roadway? Um, And are those crossings marked and safe? In addition to looking at the infrastructure present, look at intersections or crossings that are already highly trafficked. Um, So where are people already using the walking and biking network and where are they going? Identifying connections can be informed by public input as well. Residents are going to be able to tell us where they most often come from and go to, what roadways are more comfortable for them than others, and what obstacles they face when using and crossing the roadway. Yeah, this is key because there's so many times we don't have good data on bicycles and pedestrians to tell us where the activity is actually happening. And oftentimes it actually has to be based on observation or experience. You know, you hear a lot about collecting traffic counts for vehicles, but collecting counts for bicycles and pedestrians isn't as common We've been doing that as part of a um, pilot program up in Chattanooga where our client really had the foresight to really get an idea of where are those heavy traffic areas for cyclists and pedestrians. But that's not real common. So most areas don't have that readily available. Yeah, so that's a major challenge that public input can help fill in. So... It's important to not only identify gaps in walking and biking infrastructure, but also identify missing connections within walk sheds of key origins and destinations. So if you're unfamiliar, a walk shed is generally considered between a quarter mile to a half mile radius from a given point. So about a five to 10 minute walk. Identify places like grocery stores, libraries, community services, parks, and so on. Places that people need to go to regularly or where pedestrians will be more likely to access like bus stops then look at the network, or lack thereof, within those locations' walk sheds for needed connections. Essentially, regardless of infrastructure, where are people going, or where could they go that they can't already get to on foot or by bike? In addition to those gaps, identifying desire lines or like worn paths in the grass can help indicate existing pedestrian activity. 
Yeah, so essentially what you're describing here is what we call an accessibility index, basically scoring those connections that tell you where there is low pedestrian and bicycle accessibility. Exactly. Yeah, so, sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, can we go back to that worn paths um, indication? That that is a real thing because um, I remember when we were working on a comprehensive transportation plan a couple of years ago in Southern Fulton County, and um, we could just see all going down the side of the road, like for, you know, pretty long distances. It wasn't just a couple of feet here and there you know, worn paths of where people had walked so much, it was just dirt and no grass about, you know, a foot wide swath of dirt surrounded by grass. And they were clearly going from point A to B having to walk, you know, um, on the side of the road like that. So it is a real thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was I was actually um, in a community last night for a public meeting. And you know, making some observations as I was driving through and same thing. I mean, you could clearly see the worn path from the entrance of an apartment complex to the nearest bus stop and no sidewalk and people are just walking on the side of the road. You got to think about, you know, people who might be in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. or are on crutches for some reason, you know, you know, all of those challenges associated with you know just getting from point a to point b and not having a safe surface to do it on and then um i don't think we're going to talk too much about mid-block crossings in this episode but the amount of people that i saw standing on the side of the road Mm -hmm. looking for an opportunity to cross because their destination was not at an intersection so they were just gonna take the risk and it was um Two lanes in each direction mm. with a center turn lane Ooh. and a speed limit of 45 miles an hour. Oh, wow. That's scary. Yeah, it was scary. What, one more thing back to kind of like clues at an intersection that something's awry um, that I learned several years ago was that have you ever noticed at some intersections like the curbs all jacked up, you know, it's falling apart? Yeah. That's usually indicative of, you know, a large truck or tractor trailer where they don't have, um, you know, enough turning radius to be able to turn and not have their tires go up on the sidewalk. So can you imagine if you're a pedestrian and you're standing at the intersection and all of a sudden this 18 wheeler, their wheels are going up on the sidewalk? I mean, obviously, that's a safety issue as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we get into step two, I just wanted to mention about the accessibility analysis. So we're doing this type of analysis for the city of Spartanburg in South Carolina right now. And we're looking at both the street and the sidewalk network, creating these travel sheds and, uh, and essentially trying to find where there could be better connectivity, particularly for pedestrians. And, and we're using GIS to, to do this analysis. Um, I think that this requires a special like plug-in or addition to a basic GIS license, but just for you planners out there, um, there are some new features, newer features within GIS that can help with this type of analysis. Yeah, I think that was the, was that the analyst extension or something like that? I believe so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. My, my working GIS knowledge. <laughs> I might I might be able to open it. But that's about it. <laughs> All right. So step two, assess the quality of existing infrastructure. 
A connected network isn't just about the presence of sidewalks and bike paths, it's also about providing a quality network that is safe, accessible, and inviting. So uh, kind of to give some context about like comparing driving to walking and biking, here in Atlanta, it's become a meme that DeKalb Avenue is full of potholes and it's a disaster to drive on. Uh, like, yeah, I drive it's it so daily. Bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's so bad that like thousands of people make memes about it. Um, <laughs> and so DeKalb Avenue clearly doesn't fit the bill for an inviting nor quality roadway, or at least the internet doesn't think so. Similarly, when bike lanes are filled with potholes and debris or sidewalks are lifted by tree roots, that part of the active transportation network is unsafe and inaccessible. That like sidewalks with lifted tree roots are like pedestrians to Cab Avenue. Okay. Can I just yeah. tell y'all a funny story real quick? And um, this, <laughs> I am so stupid in this story, <laughs> but okay. So Kirsten, do you remember, or maybe it was, it was, this was back in like 2018 or 2019. It was 2018, I think. And, um, I got a wild hair for those of you. Okay. I am in my uh, mid to late forties. All right. Just to provide some context to our listeners out there. So this was, you know, maybe four or five years ago. So early to mid forties, I decided I was going to get um, one of the many segues. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I do know this story. <laughs> yeah. So Amber's like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> if y'all can see her face right now. So, Living in Decatur, but we're an older community, and I decided I was going to ride my mini Segway, which is kind of like a glorified hoverboard because it, you know, it has the, it has a little thing that goes up to your knees, but you have no handle, okay, and you use the knees to steer it, and I'm riding down the road, <laughs> going that which on a, I'm on a sidewalk on a four lane road going from the house up to the Martis transit station and to go into work. <clears throat> and, you know, I thought I was like a millennial or something. I don't know what I <laughs> thought I was doing. And, um, and I've got like work slacks on or something like that. And I have my eyeglasses on and I hit a bump one of those um, in the, on the sidewalk, one of those root things going on. I fly off of the mini Segway. Okay, I'm talking fly off of that thing. My glasses fly off my face. Okay. And I am like laid out. This woman that was driving down the road actually pulled over to check oh. <laughs> and make sure I was okay. Uh, yeah, after that, I think I sold the mini Segway to like Cy or somebody. <laughs> so I was like, I am too old for this. But anyway, there we go. I hit a root in the sidewalk like, and I was a goner. And and you're not and, and you're you're not the first, you're not the last for that to happen to. But Absolutely. I just like I could just picture Kelly just like bebopping along, you know, with her lap with her little backpack and and her work slacks and her shoes and all of a sudden you just like see her like spread out like a flying squirrel. Like, That's exactly what I mean. My glasses went flying, everything. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> anyway, okay. That's my story. So despite how funny that is, we don't want that to happen. Exactly. Um, so we want to provide a safe access for all ages and abilities 
and this involves careful consideration of each feature of the roadway. Starting with crosswalks, they should be visible and of a high visibility design. So like not just present and not worn down, but also like a good design. So there's multiple crosswalk designs allowed by the MUTCD and some um, are more visible to approaching vehicles and improve yielding behavior than others. So you might have like the typical um, standard parallel lines across the roadway, just like two lines from point A to point B. Um, but there's other styles like continental or ladder or zebra style where you have those bounding lines and horizontal lines. And so the crosswalk um, is really, really visible. There's a lot of white paint there at the intersection and drivers can see that much more clearly. And if your jurisdiction or state allows it, painted crosswalks, like where they put, put murals in the crosswalk, mm -hmm. improve visibility too, while also indicating to drivers that pedestrians regularly use the space. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like that strategy. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is becoming more of a trend throughout, you know, the U.S. I think it has been in Europe, but um, this is a really good way to not only increase safety, but also introduce a little bit of public art into mm -hmm. your community and help with some of that placemaking. We have well, a crosswalk in Decatur that has like spoons and forks in it or something because it's near restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah you can do it you can do whatever you want it's fine. um and then also consider how users get into the crosswalk so curb ramps uh consider that they're uh, ensure that curb ramps are oriented into the crosswalk and not into the middle of the intersection um which seems a little obvious but it's surprisingly um cross Mm -hmm. Curb ramps do not always lead into crosswalks um, and also provide tactile paving or bumps so that users with limited or no visibility can tell when they're entering the roadway and hopefully entering into a crosswalk and not the middle of the roadway and maintain curb ramps so that debris doesn't build up at the bottom of the ramp so it's accessible. Yep. Good points. And then ensure that sidewalks at the intersection are continuous and do not suddenly end before the next intersection. This kind of touches on what we talked about with the first step, but have you ever noticed a crosswalk that leads to a curb ramp, but then it just, there's just grass, there's no <laughs> yeah. more sidewalk? Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. All the time. And so it's like, are pedestrians, including like pedestrians with strollers or in wheelchairs, are they just supposed to like go off-roading or like <laughs> are they supposed to walk in the roadway yeah. so not having a sidewalk here kind of makes the provided curb ramp useless from an accessibility standpoint yeah. and then when a walking and biking path is available ensure it is smooth and free from obstructions um it's always so awkward walking down a sidewalk when uh you have to weave around like telephone poles and trash cans and trees especially if you're walking with a group of friends or there's someone else passing by it's just it's awkward and uncomfortable it's even worse as a cyclist having to weave in and out of the travel lane yeah. with other vehicles because of parked cars or other disruptions and as planners and engineers, these are trade-offs in the right-of-way that we have to put a lot of thought into and consider, and sometimes it can get political, but um, the trade-offs occur way too often, kind of at a disadvantage to people who walk and bike, and, you know, we wouldn't put telephone poles in the middle of a travel lane for cars. <laughs> yeah, um, fair point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, so for most pedestrians, this is merely an annoyance, 
But for people in wheelchairs mm-hmm. or with other mobility limitations or even people pushing strollers, this can be a significant accessibility and safety issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I saw this last night. I, I see it all over the place, especially the telephone poles on one of my walking routes, the sidewalk at like at least the fire hydrant isn't in the middle of the sidewalk, but you make this like weird, like little bump out, like around it. (laughs) Um, And then like last night when I was driving through this community, they had a retaining wall on the sidewalk and then a utility pole right in the middle of it. And you could tell it was pretty new. Like they had just repaved that section. And I was like, the best you could do. Yeah. Okay. There you go. And can I just say it's especially annoying for old ladies on many segways that don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so step three, separate users in time and space. A key part of providing a safe network is to reduce conflict points. This is especially important for users traveling at different speeds in different directions or with different levels of protection, such as drivers in a two-ton vehicle versus vulnerable road users who just have their body to protect them. Mm -hmm. We might be more familiar with physically separating users in space, such as sidewalks and protected bike lanes. These are critical to a connected network, and we can continue the separation of these users through an intersection. This can be done with curb extensions, median refuge islands, and cyclist-protected intersections. These treatments all allow pedestrians and cyclists to have a dedicated, visible space to wait and move through an intersection and reduce their crossing time, therefore reducing their exposure to conflict with drivers. Separating users in time, on the other hand, usually involves signalization treatments. Leading pedestrian intervals, or LPIs, are one example. This is when the pedestrian signal is timed so that peds get the go-ahead for a few seconds before drivers get a green light. Mm LPIs allow pedestrians to get into the crosswalk and be visible to drivers before they get the green. So this kind of goes back to, like, if you're driving, like, trying to watch where you're going and watch, you know, are there other people you're going to interact with? LPIs let you be able to see the pedestrian before you even go, um, so you don't have to look over your shoulder. Um, So Atlanta has quite a few LPIs in downtown and midtown. Um, at Boulevard and Ralph McGill, for example, I cross that intersection all the time, and it's so busy for all modes. Um, Boulevard leads to the interstate, and Ralph McGill leads down to the Beltline. Um, so that's why it's so busy. And um, no matter if I'm walking, biking, or driving, um, it's hard to pay attention to all users. So even on the rare occasions that I do drive, it's nice to have those few seconds to see people walking, especially because, uh, you know, if like traffic is backed up, how are you going to see a pedestrian behind a car that's, you know, stuck in the crosswalk? Yeah. So, and this sounds like a, a, a given, but just make sure that your pedestrian crosswalk you know, signals are actually working. You know, uh, my my son and I, my eleven year old and I, were walking somewhere recently. I can't remember what it was, but every every intersection we got to, the pedestrian signals weren't working. Like we kept hitting the button, nothing was happening. And he goes, "I think these are just for show." <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, "No, they're supposed to be working." <laughs> supposed to be. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, to that to that point, I know that GDOT and a lot of other DRTs have implemented um, technology, 
you know, software and firmware where they can monitor signal performance mm-hmm. remotely. And one of the things that they monitor is the performance of the pedestrian signals um, and whether or not the push buttons are working mm-hmm. and if they're getting activated appropriately. So, um, so there is technology out there if you are a municipality that manages your traffic signals. Um, I know here in Georgia, GDOT will offer a partnership to you if you don't already have it. Um, and they will install this software on your traffic signals. So that's awesome. Just a little tidbit. Yeah. The other yeah. thing to add to that, in addition to monitoring the, the performance of the um, technology, there's also like, you know, sensors that you can have installed so that you don't even have to push the button in the first place as well. So that can detect whether or not, you know, a pedestrian is there. No, you're almost jumping ahead to step oh, four. My bad. Didn't mean to <laughs> no, steal that's your okay. thunder. That's great. <laughs> um, well, while we're still on step, step three, it's also possible to allow pedestrian or cyclist only phases, especially in high conflict or high volume areas. So this helps reduce vulnerable road users exposure to cars. And then cars can just go without having to wait on people walking across. Yeah, so they have a few of these also in Atlanta. They have one down by Centennial Olympic Park, which if you're not familiar with the city, that's also where Mercedes-Benz Stadium is. Mm -hmm. That's where our football arena, um, State Farm Arena, which is our basketball arena, the Georgia World Congress Center, which is um, probably the largest uh, conference center in the state of Georgia. Um, so there's a lot of pedestrian activities, mm-hmm. especially during special events. So they have one there. They also have one at the Georgia Tech campus um, where you have a lot of students crossing. So they have a pedestrian-only phase there just because of the sheer volume of, of people walking around in the area. Um, and, you know, they're also able, because it's a pedestrian-only, that they can cross diagonally mm-hmm. through the intersection. Um And I think as long as drivers understand that no movement is allowed, like even right turns during this phase, it's it's pretty effective for moving people safely. Mm -hmm. Left turn lanes and left signal phasing are probably a more common example of signalization to separate users. The purpose of turn lanes is primarily to keep through traffic moving while those turning wait for clearance. And when these are coupled with left signal phasing, the drivers can turn at an intersection without having to make a judgment call about crossing oncoming traffic or anyone in the crosswalk. Um, Because if you're going at a much slower speed and someone's coming at you 40 miles an hour and you're trying to turn, Mm -hmm. if you don't estimate that risk right, you're going to have a really bad day. Yeah. And so these interventions that give users dedicated time and space for their movement in an intersection reduce the amount of risky decision-making we're asking people on our roads to make, ultimately helping make their trip safer. All right, and now step four, improve signals and technologies for all modes. So have you ever been at a stoplight and it's taking so long to change that you wonder if it knows you're there or maybe it's just faulty? Kind of mm-hmm. like that pedestrian signal you talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it's sit just there, there for like, show. <laughs> no, I, I sit at them and I'm like, all right, who at GDOT am I going to call? Yeah. I was like, this, this is not, this is not acting correctly. Mm-hmm. I need to, I need to find my contact and let them know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, has this detected me or is it just like on a 10 minute cycle? Right. Um, So um, vehicle detection is helpful so that you're not waiting forever. And you know that in a few seconds, you'll have a green light. 
And for cyclists and pedestrians, detection can also improve compliance. So like not people darting out in front of you. And uh, it can also contribute to improved sharing of the space with vehicles at intersections. So there are some signals that operate on fixed or time phasing. And personally, this is just my opinion, not like an expert opinion, but as a cyclist and pedestrian, I'm okay with timed phasing because I can rely on the signal to change um, mm-hmm. without me having to do anything other than wait. So I know like if I just wait here, I won't have to interact with cross traffic right. and I'll be able to go. But uh, actuated signals or signals that rely on detection or some type of activation to change aren't always preferable, at least for active transportation, because they... Um, Well, they require more maintenance on the back end, Um, but actuated signals um, can maintain flow on major arterials until a user on a cross street needs to cross safely. So they do have their uses. Um, And also with the fact that we use vehicle actuated signals at all, like just the fact that they exist um, is reason enough that we should also consider detection for non-motorized users as well. Mm And so for pedestrians, detection usually involves pedestrian push buttons. Um, And for these buttons, the detection itself is pretty straightforward. The challenge um, a lot of times or a common challenge is communicating to pedestrians that they are detected, that their push button works. Mm -hmm. It isn't just for show (laughs) and doing so in a way that is also easily understood by all users Accessible pedestrian signals or APS give audible cues when the actuation has occurred and when it's safe to cross. Mm-hmm. And great APS includes um, push button locator tones, so like that that little beeping that you hear, mm-hmm. and tactile arrows and speech messages stating which street it's safe for you to cross when the don't walk signal begins to flag. Oh, sorry, let me clarify. And Great APS includes speech messages stating which street is safe for crossing when you're good to go. And it also will audibly tell you when the don't walk signal begins to flash. Uh, Okay. Yep. Important distinction. Yes. Um, Do not walk on the don't walk signal. Um, (laughs) The American Council of the Blind has a lot of great info on APS and accessibility. So check that out for more info there. Um, And I've linked them in the show notes. But um, there's a lot more variables when it comes to bike detection. There's a growing wealth of research on bike detection. um, But what is important is to ensure that cyclists can easily and clearly be detected and know that they've been detected Mm -hmm. um, so that they don't have to kind of make a risk judgment and jump in front of oncoming traffic. Mm -hmm. And so there's different types of bike detection and installation. Detection can either allow bicyclists to wait in any location Um, or it can require them to wait in a specific location to be detected. And there's limitations and trade-offs to both. Smart detection, connected infrastructure, and thermal video can detect cyclists no matter where they wait. However, the technology is not always fail-proof, so this is kind of evolving. Um, The use of smartphone softwares um, can be used to detect cyclists, similar to the concept of connected vehicles. However, there are a lot of unknowns and cyclists may not always have their phones on them, Mm -hmm. especially lower income cyclists who may not even have a phone. And then thermal detection coupled with video can detect cyclists and vehicles based on heat, but they face limitations like warm weather and glare. Inductive loops or video zones can detect cyclists if they arrive to a specified location marked on the pavement, and bikes can also be detected with a push button like pedestrians. 
Um, so these are the options for if they have to wait in a specific location. Um, but even when bikes, you know, if we provide a push button for bikes like we do pedestrians, then that push button needs to be located next to their designated waiting location, such as at the edge of a roadway or in a bike box. Um, it's not really reasonable to ask cyclists to like get onto the sidewalk which is illegal for them to ride on by the way and Mm -hmm. then like push the pedestrian push button to cross yeah i Um, i've experienced that before on my the one time that i rode my bike to the office it was an eight mile stint in august in hills and it took me two hours and then i left my bike at the office for a year so much so that people thought it was artwork on the wall Um, (laughs) but I noticed that when I did do that, that, um, I would have to, you know, really get awkwardly try to get over to push that button. It wasn't easy to get to. And then it really messes up with your flow, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? So yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. And then you have to somehow like get back into the travel lane without, you know freaking drivers out or you know making yourself unsafe yeah exactly sometimes it's worse yeah yeah and then detection feedback um so knowing that you're detected and that you're good to wait before you cross um that feedback can be provided by countdown timers or blue light signals these may be may be located far side so like on the masthead on the other side of the intersection like where signals usually are, or near side, so near the stop by the user, especially if we use a push button. And both options, um, it's really encouraged that they're accompanied by signage because bicyclist detection is so rare. So we kind of need to include signage, making it clear like, hey, this lets you know that you've been detected, you're good to, um, you're good to wait, and then you'll be able to go. Um, that way we're not just putting in the detection for them to just jet across the street anyway. And research at Portland State University found that far side blue light detection feedback had the most cyclist compliance and understanding. Hmm. But like I said, some of the research on this is still emerging. So it's worth checking that out and kind of doing some more digging for your own community. And when critical intersections in the bike and pedestrian network are planned to get signal upgrades, it's a great opportunity to upgrade intersections with better detection and signal information for those users as well. All right. Moving on to step... Oh, did you have something to add? Nope. I was just going to say that was a great overview of technology. I think this is the first episode this season where we really dug into um, some transportation technologies. So um, I thought that was was good. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Um, Step five. This is our last step. Develop and adopt supporting policies. Um, Policies are important because they can help us planners bring our transportation goals to fruition. One policy that can be helpful, especially with maintenance and filling in network gaps, is to encourage or require developers to provide new sidewalks and sometimes even bike lanes to the roads adjacent to their projects. Property owners are commonly responsible for sidewalks already, even if it's not well enforced. And sidewalk and bike lane requirement policies would typically fall under subdivision regulations or design guides. Many major cities already require a five foot wide ADA compliant sidewalks, although um, you know, in busy areas, if you can even require wider sidewalks, that would be great. I don't know about the success of requiring developers build bike lanes. I imagine that this would occur in denser areas and business districts. 
I heard talk about a proposed policy when I was working in Seattle, but it was contentious even there in one of like our nation's most bike friendly cities. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I know the policy may be difficult, but one approach that that's being taken in downtown Atlanta by Central Atlanta Progress is to go ahead and designate street typologies for each corridor, which identifies like the intended use and the intended curb uses. I think is a first step putting this intent or desire into plans and, Mm -hmm. you know, building consensus around those plans with stakeholders and developers in that area uh, can really help ensure that implementation. And, and let me clarify for that, for that plan, we are not recommending bike lanes on every corridor downtown. Mm -hmm. That was something that we heard very loud and clear from, well, it was very polarizing in our public survey, you had some people, they were like, we need bike lanes everywhere. And then a lot of other people were like, we do not need bikes everywhere. Like not every road needs to have bikes on them. Sometimes, you know, that road is meant for getting traffic in and out or loading mm-hmm. zones. Yeah. And let's not create more conflict. So we are not recommending bike lanes on every corridor in downtown Atlanta. But we have designated or have identified a few corridors that we think are important, critical connections, both north-south direction and east-west. I think that's I think that's a good point. And and um, we've done taken a similar approach in other areas when we've developed proactive smart corridor networks and looking at intended users. You know, is this to move freight? Is it to move vehicles? Is it to move people with um, bike peds and um, transit? And or some combination of all the above. Right. But it doesn't mean you need to put in improvements to get everybody everywhere at, you know, at all times. It could be that, you know, that there's one corridor that would be really good to move everybody where another corridor. It's like, okay, let's focus. Let's use this to get trucks in and out type thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, right now, so many of the roads all over the U.S. are really trying to, you know, be like they're trying to assume all of those roles Mm -hmm. right and everybody's trying to use every road um and that's what's creating so much of this conflict so you know for for this one we're thinking really intently about the points of interest Mm -hmm. um what mode should go where where are there going to be you know Loading dock, not loading docks, but like entrances for trucks into parking garages. Right. Where are the front doors of hotels going to be? Because we know there's going to be a lot of ride share, mm-hmm. pick up and drop off. Yeah. So really trying to think about all of those, but um, also recognizing that all of these modes need their own space. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's been a challenge, but it's we're, we're getting close to, to wrapping it up. So for our listeners over the next several months... Definitely check out Central Atlanta Progress and um, our our typologies recommendations for downtown Atlanta. And so those typologies, while not a binding policy, is that um, to encourage the city or is that to encourage developers to build or how does that work? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's really meant to be a guide for both city and developers. So as as a part of it, so we have the street typologies. And then on some of the streets, we've identified capital improvements to support those typologies. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, um, we've got some roads where we want them to be like a shared use 
or like a shared street. So have, you know, really prioritize pedestrians and bicyclists. Um, in those cases, the developers are very interested in making that happen. So there may be an opportunity for a public-private partnership um, in which they would help with those improvements. In other cases, um, it would be, you know, the city of Atlanta or if there's any state routes, you know, GDOT and sharing that with them and, you know, encouraging those designs. But the city of Atlanta has been a um, very integral stakeholder Mm -hmm. in this process. Um, And I think that's a key step is like getting them on board with the plan and then having their their staff try to push those policies through. Yeah. They got to have ownership in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, other policies that we could recommend um, can require sidewalks, bike lanes, and other improvements anytime a road is being improved. So this is kind of keeping it in the in the municipal or the public responsibility. Um, typically, I've seen this covered under complete streets policies. So, for example, Little Rock passed a complete streets policy in 2015, and their policy clearly states like what a complete street is, what is what type of infrastructure is included in that, such as sidewalks and bike lanes, what type of road projects um, the policy applies to, mm-hmm. such as new construction and repaving, and then also explicitly states exceptions such as routine maintenance, like street sweeping or on roadways where pedestrians are prohibited by law, like interstates. So in Little Rock, anytime they do, um, they repave a road or they're constructing a new road, um, it's required that they make it a complete street. And such policies help ensure that if the roadway is going to be improved for drivers, that it's improved for all other road users as well. Um, And then... In addition, this sort of falls out of um, what is considered a policy, but most states and municipalities uphold MUTCD standards for roadway design, and some major cities have also adopted NACTO design guides as well, and adopting both guides can lead to um, more exceptional multimodal facilities. For example, Portland adopted NACTO and has since seen appropriate uh, urban speed limits, linear lighting on roadways and restoring crosswalks on each leg of signalized intersections. So they've seen some progress just by adopting NACTO and letting that inform their staff at PBOT. And can you share with our listeners what MUTCD and NACTO stands for? (laughs) Yes, I can. MUTCD (laughs) is the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. And so this is really the guidebook of like why a stop sign looks the same Mm -hmm. everywhere you go in the country. Um, and, you know, it kind of helps ensure some uniformity. So while there are different laws with transportation and driving state to state a little bit, there's at least enough uniformity that everyone knows generally what's going on. And then NACTO is, oh, I think it's like National Association for City Transportation Officials. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they provide a lot of guides Um, for different roadway designs they have like a pedestrian guide bike guide transit guide yeah and they just have a lot of management they got all kinds of stuff yeah yeah they just have um a lot of resources for just providing some additional professional and research-backed guidance for better designing our roadways depending on you know if you if you want to make a more multimodal or incorporate um, more sustainability features and things like that well, Amber, this has been a fantastic overview. Yeah. I really enjoyed you know, talking about you know intersection design. I think my favorite piece 
just because I'm so interested in the technology is understanding how technologies can be applied to increase vulnerable road user Mm -hmm. safety, particularly pedestrians and bicyclists at intersections. So appreciate everything that that you brought to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I think that was my favorite piece, too. But this was, I mean really um informative episode and you know i got to tell a few stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got a good laugh out of it so thank you um and that technology piece really inspired my idea for this episode in the first place but there's a mm-hmm. whole lot more to learn about it so but it was nice to get to dip my toes into it yeah that was good well all right so let's wrap this up um we want to thank everyone for tuning in if you are a nationally certified planner through the american institute of certified planners this episode is eligible for aicp continuing maintenance credits and you can find all of our podcasts are eligible for aicp scene credits and they are on the american planning association's website at www.planning.org. All you got to do is look up AICP CM providers and type in modern mobility partners and you'll see all of our episodes on there. Um, If you want to learn more about how we at Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com and you can also find there on the website a free downloadable cheat sheet for today's episode. Uh, and as always, don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. That's the best way to thank us for all of our free, fabulous content is to share it and provide us only five star reviews. Uh, nothing else will be accepted and <laughs> you can find us. Is that allowed? Can I even do, we can't accept they, it is what it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. But you know, Um, we strongly encourage only five star reviews. (laughs) And then uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And with that, we are over and out. All right. bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.